Yama. Welcome to Blackademia, a podcast of yarns with First Nations academics of these lands now commonly referred to as Australia. I'm your host, Amy Tunig. I'm a Gamilaroi woman, and I begin by paying my respects to elders past and present, and to the lands on which this podcast is recorded and streamed. Listeners are advised that this podcast, its associated website and social media presence may contain the voices and or images of First Nations people who have since passed. Discretion is advised. Today's guest is Sandy O'Sullivan. Sandy is an Associate Professor and Deputy Head of the School of Creative Industries at the University of the Sunshine Coast. For 27 years, they have taught and researched across gender and sexuality, the body, performance and design in relation to First Nations identity. Sandy holds a practice-focused PhD across these intersecting areas. Yama Sandy, your official bio is super impressive, but before we get into it, I was wondering if you could please introduce yourself in terms of who your mob is and can you tell me a little bit about your family and community life? Sure. So, um, so I'm Sandy O'Sullivan. I am a Rajri and oh, my family life. Well, uh, I have a lot of family. <laughs> I was about to say too many, but that's not right, is it? Um, <laughs> I've got a lot of uh, nieces and nephews and great nieces and great nephews. Um, a lot of whom live in Australia, but some of whom live in Japan. And I have a mum who lives just down the road from me in assisted care. And I've got two brothers and two sisters. I would tell you how many nieces and nephews I have, but I don't, like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> One of my sisters has eight, uh, nine. Uh, oh, anyway, whatever, a lot <laughs> of, of um, grandkids. So, um, and of course, you know, some of the uh, my great nieces and nephews are adults. So the next thing that's going to happen is inevitable. <laughs> I can't yeah. speak out loud. <laughs> <laughs> there will be more. There'll be another grade in there. Um, so I identify as transgender, as non-binary. Um, I think that's pretty much me. I'm an associate professor up at uh, University of the Sunshine Coast. I'm deputy head of school of creative industries. I am, grew up, I was born on country, in Wiradjuri country in Wagga. I grew up in Bathurst and then moved to North Queensland with my dad and the family, sorry, with the whole family. I was born in 1966, um, so I'm 53. Am I still 53? Yes, I'm 53. (laughs) Um, And I'm the baby of the family, so I keep wanting to make myself older. Um, There comes a point, I'm sure, where that will not happen. (laughs) I haven't quite reached it yet, so... Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so those who follow you online would know that you seem to have such a great relationship with your mother, the amazing Dr. Mary Claire O'Sullivan, uh, and your brother is Dr. David Hardy. Can you share some insight into what it's like as a black academic to be part of an academic family? Yeah, it's funny. I think both of them would say they're not really academics. <laughs> they're, they're definitely people who are interested in stuff and information mm. and research. And David's a writer. You know, so so he'd been um, a career um, diplomat. So I'll, start, I'll sort of start with David because his story is a bit easier to tell, really. Brother, one of my older brothers, and but two brothers and two sisters. They're both older. Um, and David, um, yeah, he was a yeah career diplomat. Was over in he'd been in Samoa, in um, uh, Warsaw, in Bali, in um, Manila, and we'd all visited him in all of those places, and it really. You know, had a had a wonderful time, but he moved on to be the director of Trade Queensland for a number of years, and then he decided to retire and do his PhD, which he did at Bachelor, um, because he wanted to do it in a space where um, there were, you know, it was centrally First Nations um, yeah. folks, and he wanted to do it on um, on autobiography and writing and uh, and writing autobiography. And so he also did um, some autobiographical writing, but he actually wrote a novel as well. Did too much because he's a bloody overperformer. <laughs> so, <laughs> but one of the wonderful things that he did um, beyond that was to come up with a book called Bold, which is the stories of older LGBTQ plus people that includes a lot of First Nations stories because, of course, it does. Um, but it's also there's like, I think there's 75 stories in it and they're all about two pages. Like it's, you know, really perfect 
story you just don't hear stories from older um queer people mm. so it was a really great this great opportunity to get insights into what it was to be older and queer and uh he's done that mum like me left school really young uh, david actually went through school but i left school at 13 and so did mum um so uh she had so mum's um not aboriginal she's english uh, she came out from england when she was 12 11 12 and left school obviously married an aboriginal guy in the 50s and had a family and she had a pretty rough time with dad they got divorced in the 70s she went to uni then um and quite a few years later mum finished her phd after me she went and did her phd on the english in australia as an ethnic group which was really interesting because she was she's in anthropology and she was pretty much pushed into try into people saying you should write about Aboriginal people because you've got so many Aboriginal people in your family, mm. blah, 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 blah. And mum said, well, I don't think I should. I think I should be writing stories about, you know, the colonizers and about that kind of colonial experience and understanding a little bit about that. And so although she found some of it slightly unpalatable, she won't mind saying, <laughs> um, it was really interesting for her too. Like she went to the St George Society full places. She said she had to get a special outfit to go there <laughs> so that she didn't look like her usual hippie self. Um, but it was a fascinating, you know, approach, and I learned a lot from her doing that. Uh, she started before me but finished after, so I think she would have finished about 10 years ago, something like that. Not long after mum finished her PhD, she got Alzheimer's or she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, mm. probably it happened earlier than that. One of the big messages I think that I know now and that I wish other people knew was mum was diagnosed in 2013 with Alzheimer's, and we could certainly see the signs. At that stage, it wasn't a huge surprise. It was shock. But mm not a huge surprise. I thought that she'd start losing her memories right away. Mum still has her memories. You know, it's a it's completely random and specific to people how it goes. Wow. Um, I think it helped. You know, I used to think that there was a bit of a tragedy that mum got her PhD and then got Alzheimer's. Now I actually know it was a good thing. Yeah, okay. You know, that it helped her be able to keep her mind active. I don't mean I don't mean that in a way that suggests the more that you do, you know, that you're active, I think it's still random. It's yeah. still, yeah. you know, just about the biology. Mm. But I think it helps that she has these systems and this order in her life um, that operates a particular way. And, of course, I know the thing that helps her a lot is the fact that my brother, David, and, and my other brother, Tony, and also my sisters, um, Gina and Rhonda, spend a lot of time there, you know, with her, and I do too. So, but David in particular, he retired uh, sort of, you know, still does stuff. He had a stroke a couple of years ago um, that was quite bad. Came back from it remarkably well. They thought he was going to die. And before that, he mum had been living with him. And so he'd have to... I mean, all of that stuff, like the family stuff, it's so important. And it's such a gift to have mum there. She's really funny and interesting. Yeah. And I'm lucky to have that. I live just down the road from her. I actually bought my first place. I never owned a place until uh, until this year. And I bought a one-bedroom place, not just so that none of my family can move in with me, but <laughs> though I think some of the great nieces and nephews have kind of worked out subdivision of it's a fairly large one-bedroom apartment on the beach. So, um, But, you know, it, it's a nice feeling to be close to her, but it's yeah. also, you know, um, I, I know that she's she's not getting any better and that you know she's getting um substantially worse and she knows that too but again it's just not the narrative that i understood you know mm. you just only hear negative things about people with alzheimer's i didn't know that you that her memories would actually come into focus a lot more wow. that she would remember things that she hadn't before none of that stuff was something that i knew and I, of course i'm a researcher even though i'm not across that field so i've read a whole lot of stuff about this to understand what i'm observing yeah. and to, to know whether this is just an exception or to know whether this is actually something that's pretty standard it is pretty standard wow. you know and so six years later um more than six years later mum has done a lot of things she's connected with a lot of people she's her life wasn't over six years ago um she's traveled internationally three times which i think is more than you it's, it is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, so, you know, so it's an incredible joy, you know. So I'm so lucky to have them. Yeah. 
that joy really comes through in your posts. I mean, you have such a positive social media presence anyway, um, but it, it is very refreshing and, and wonderful to see people of a certain age, and by that I don't mean that you're old, I mean that you stop, <laughs> you stop seeing representation of the mother-child relationship once people kind of reach past teenagers. And so it's been, for me, really nice to observe that value then on social media because it's really not that present in social media from what I've seen. And so I really appreciate that. Um, and it's I feel like I know your mother a little bit, which is such a funny thing yeah. to say, but especially when you put up videos with her. Um, yeah. So you've, you mentioned that you left formal schooling at the age of 13. And now you're an associate professor and you have a PhD and you're the deputy head of the School of Creative Industries at a university. What? Um, How does that happen? I don't know. Um, <laughs> it, was, it, it was, uh, uh, I have enough imposter syndrome to not know why. Um, in fact, I was just doing a presentation before and somebody read out the list just as you did of the stuff that I've done. And I thought, that just all sounds like a lie. <laughs> It is definitely not a lie. I I think, definitely not a lie. But it's it's really interesting because I think you live different lives as well. Mm. The answer to the question really is that I've always been inquiring, but I just couldn't manage formal school. Mm. Um, You know, I couldn't read um, when I left school. And so I, you know, I'm not dyslexic or anything. I just... I'm just going to say, I was probably lazy. Um, and But I just didn't anyway. You know, a lot of things happened that meant that um, that, that didn't happen for me. And yeah. so that made it hard in the 70s um, to even um, get the doll and so on. I worked at um, sort of three jobs when I first left, and I think that's the answer to how I'm where I am now. And that was I worked in a laundromat, um, which I loved, <laughs> let's not worry too much about why who knows why I love washing things but anyway can't wash my that. things but I, but I also worked at a skating rink which I really loved um in a whole lot of ways but I also worked at a music store and the music store delivered me kind of my lifelong work which is that I you know I play fretted instruments that's my you know associate professor of music so um so I play banjo and guitar. Banjo, very, very punk instrument, let me say. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's really loud and obnoxious. Um, and I love it, you know. Uh, I, and I love guitar and I love fretted instruments generally. I play oud, I play a few other um, fretted instruments as well. And I think I became, as a teenager, competent at something when I wasn't competent at reading. I became competent at learning music you know, and being good at it. Uh, and so I, when I went to, somebody said you can go to uni, I'd, I went, I'd done a TAFE course where I'd certainly got um, competent at reading and writing, um, but I'd never, even in that TAFE course, I didn't have to write anything more than a paragraph. So I'd never written an essay or anything. Hmm. And when I was about 23 or 24, I went to, 23 I think I must have been, I, I went to Wollongong, I found out that I could get into uni I was interested in Wollongong Uni because they had a really good creative industries program, uh, creative arts program at the time, and I wanted to do. Oh, what did I, okay, so here's the admission <laughs> a degree in musical theatre. Um, so I wanted to do musical theatre, boom, boom, um, and I mean banjo, of course I did. Um, so I so I went and um, did. Uh, when I auditioned, so although I wouldn't have gotten in in my scholarly stuff, I got in and on the basis of audition and I actually went into acting, into performance. So I did that um, and I, I wrote my first ever essay and got a good mark for it and I know this is terrible but it's kind of the thing that, um, you know, it shocked me. I never thought that I could write but I listened to what people were saying, so I learnt. You know, I wasn't there to prove that I knew something. I was there to learn. And I've always thought that through every research project I've done and everything that I've done is I never want to demonstrate what I know. I kind of want to learn stuff yeah. and then think about it and then make sense of it, I suppose, for me and then share it but also know that I'm not being authoritative with it. And so anyway, from there on, I just uh, – I, I my first jobs um, afterwards – we were both as an artist, as artist in residence with Ali um, Smith, who I um, made sound art with, 
um, for a couple of years at Wollongong City Gallery, but I was also then working at the uni as a, a tutor, first of all, and then a lecturer. It was a funding time. There weren't people who, nobody had a credential around digital technologies. Hmm. So I was teaching sound and I was teaching um, um, web design and I was teaching, uh, before web design, I mean, the web came out when we were doing the World's Women Online project. I mean, Mosaic came out the year that we were planning it, which was the first web browser. So before that, there just were elements that yep. you could um, download, but, you know, they weren't. Um, so, I, so I started being very interested in um, interactive technologies and, um, and I've been really supported by the Indigenous unit. Uh, at that stage, it was called the Aboriginal unit at Wollongong. Um, the person who ran it was really good friends with my dad and um, it was a lovely space to be in, I suppose, culturally, but at the time, I don't know, it was a different narrative then. Hmm. Um, but I, anyway, to kind of very long story short, I started working at Wollongong Uni, was also working at the uh, gallery, but at the time I was also working at the Youth Centre. Um, and so I was really interested in the, you know, in all of those things. Um, and then I went to the Emirates um, and worked for three years in Dubai, um, running uh, the Comtech program there. Um, so had an amazing experience there. Came back, decided to do my PhD at Newcastle, um, swore that I wasn't going to be teaching and then I think I was teaching before I was anything involved <laughs> yeah. in the PhD. And so I was at Newcastle for quite a few years. Then I went to um, Bachelor after I finished my PhD in 2005, six. No way! That means um, you were at Newcastle Uni when I was also at Newcastle Uni. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. just so, a tiny crossover. So I, I guess I didn't teach you, but I could have been teaching you. So you might um, have. There you go. Um, so, so yeah, so I was teaching there in the design area, but you know, Wally had that whole have to have Aboriginal people teaching stuff. And yeah, short on staff, and so I agreed to teach into some of their um, work as well. And I've always tried to teach in the disciplines. I think it's really important that we inhabit the disciplines. Incredibly important. Yes. Um, and my disciplines are in the creative industries area. So. Well, my first um, degree is arts. And I was there, there in 2006. I'm going to check my, my transcript. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, in fact, I think all of the art stuff that I was doing was down on the Central Coast. That's where so I that was. Been, oh, yeah. God. I was at the, yeah, Arimba, the Arimba campus for my first year. I only did Newcastle campus in my final year when I was very pregnant with my daughter and those stairs were nearly the death of me waddling around with yeah, my yeah. eight-month pregnant belly. But, um, yeah, no, I was, I was down there. I was one of the first intakes with Gabali. Fantastic. Wow. <laughs> so we our paths yeah. probably crossed back then. Isn't that funny? I'm sure I'm sure we would have actually. I was always out there stealing food. Well not you I mean you're allowed to take it, but I was always out there scrounging for food and going through things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I was working there and me too. Um <laughs> so no, I, I I loved being at Newcastle. I mean it was a problem problem space. Um, you know, and I'm just gonna say bluntly because everybody sort of does about Newcastle. It continues to be, but Part mm. of the reason is that it was big. Like, it was that there were a lot of people there. There was a lot of Aboriginal people there. Like, you know, when people whinge about places that are problematic, it's usually because there's lots of people. And that's actually a very good thing, you know? Like, so it makes sense that you're going to have... And, you know, it's the colonial project to kind of have us fight against ourselves. Oh, yeah. So and we're not a homogenous that... group. Like, it's no. we're, we, we should be different. It's really similar to putting a bunch of Absolutely. European people together and expecting Germans and French and all of that to be like, oh, no, our everything aligns and we agree on this. And it's like, well, you wouldn't anticipate that, but that's what's anticipated here. No, and in the workplace, it's also in the workplace that we have, it's also the disciplines. Yeah. You know, that people come from different kind of angles on things as well yeah. within that. And so there's a, yeah, there's a funny thing about it that, uh, you know, and so again, that was a great experience. And then I went up to Bachelor. Um, where I was for 10 years, a bit, bit over 10 years. I started the Centre for Collaborative First Nations Research up there, but I also um, did was um, Director of Research for a time and did a lot of different roles there. I got my sort of bigger, biggest first ARC there. Um, and, you know, it was a really great project on looking at 470 museums, um, you know, where I visited all those museums and looked at their capacity to represent and engage First Nations peoples. And that was a major project. I mean, it 
it kind of made me as an academic, and I don't mean actually as an academic, I might mean as a person. Mm. You know, it made me think about my world differently. Yeah. Um, and it made me like people a bit more than I did before. Well, that's I nice. It, I thought it'd be the opposite. Yes. Bloody museums. And, yes. And in particular, social history museums that we have so many. Com- you know, I'd come out of doing a lot of work in the repatriation of human remains. Mm. And in that work, um, oh, God, it's such a hard job. You know, like the you have this adversarial relationship with the museum because, of course, you do. Mm. And, you know, you have to engage with them in particular ways. And, I mean, sort of famously the story is that I was at one of those museums that I'd had a court case with. And as I walked in the front door... Um, their lead curator ran out the back door when they saw me coming in. Um, <laughs> I know, it was hilarious. I mean, it wasn't, I'm just thinking... Oh, You're terrifying. No, I mean, it was that. But, of course, what I did was, you know, use that as the momentum for this whole project and went, okay, how can we have, you know, it's not our responsibility to do this, by the way, Yeah. but I was thinking um, they have a responsibility to us Yes. So how do I get from them what works in the museum? So my whole project was about what works. And what works sounds like it's really touchy-feely. It's actually quite the opposite. Museums were frightened to death of telling me what works because they had to examine themselves, mm. you know, and that was really interesting, mm. um, you know, and including the UK in it. Um, the US and Australia were relatively... They weren't easy, but they're straightforward in terms of what you do, what you'd look at, and so on. I was looking at the way that places represented themselves and their own First Nations people. So when I went to the UK to look at how they represented their own First Nations people, honestly, it was incredibly hard, but it was the right thing to do as well. Um, and it was hard because they didn't believe that they had First Nations people. They Also, there was the whole rhetoric about you know, the sort of British nationalist stuff, the, the you know, people who claim indigeneity are kind of, you know, right-wing nutjobs. There was that stuff. Like, there were problematic things with this. Mm. But at the same time, you know, what it, where it had come from was essentially from community. It was me saying to a, you know, well, a community member saying to me, it wasn't me doing anything, um, community member saying, you, you know, you can tell a lot about, how people treat others by how they treat themselves mm. and how they represent themselves and they go oh shit now i have to go to <laughs> yeah great thanks <laughs> you know now i'm gonna waste years in england <laughs> answers from them and it was and it was hard to get you know they i mean the british museum um were fantastic in the end um but they were it was hard you know mm. they kept wanting to redirect me towards aboriginal representation I mean, I've even got an I've got an email from the British Museum saying we're not a British museum, you know. So it's you know, and eventually they came up with something and it was genius. They pointed me to the Ice Age art exhibition that they had, which was thirty, you know, some of the figures like Lion Man and Venus of Willendorf are thirty four thousand years old. You know, so they're talking about the human mind, Mm. they're talking about culture and they're talking, but there was also a lot of really important things and I've I've written about it a bit, but there were still revelations for me. Like I found out why colonisation happens. Like I literally found out why it happens um, through this project and it was going to the Museum of London and seeing seeing their reverence and their... um, very strange promotion of Roman cultural incursion and and seeing going to places like Vindolanda and on Hadrian's Wall and seeing, you know, this opportunity to dress up as a Roman centurion. I mean, imagine if we had a a museum that was our museum, an Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander museum in Canberra. I guess you don't have to imagine it's gonna happen, but <laughs> um, but imagine if all that we spent time doing was talking about how great it was to be colonized and how it made us better. Yeah. And if you think that, then wouldn't you want to colonise other people? Yeah. If you think that time that we got colonised, everything got better. We got toilets. You know, we got, I mean, all of this, the narrative was absolutely about it improving. And I'm fascinated by that. Yeah. So, um, yeah. (laughs) So So more than anything, that was a revelation to me. But I had to do a really hard thing 
which is that knowing that I had to go to England, I had to learn to love it um, because I never had, in spite of mum being English, I'd always had a resentment towards it. Mm. And so I actually had to set up some cultural traps to force myself into loving it because you can't investigate a place and talk to people and represent them by resenting them, mm. you know. So I had to do some tricks on myself with it. So the, the core trick was um, looking at a whole – I mean, I think I looked at Doctor Who, you know. I mean, I think it was that. Like it was anything that was going to – get me thinking there are interesting contributions that, are, that can be made yeah um, so yeah i love that that you just shared so much gold all in one hit mm. like i love that story of you know um well i reject the idea that a lazy child is a child who doesn't learn to read and i completely put it on structural and, and issues that must have been around you um True. but this idea of, you know, that this is something that I want people outside of academia to know, that just because school was terrible for you, it's actually terrible for a lot of us. And there are other ways in. And academia doesn't look like school. And I I think that we don't don't have things in our lives or in pop culture necessarily that show us what it actually looks like to be an academic, that, you know, your love of inquiry actually then translated beautifully. It was a great tool in the academy and that it was a banjo and musical theatre that saw you come in and, and that having a very serious and responsible role and having these very big projects like looking at museums, which, you know, would be taxing but also very important, can come from a love of music and a sense of accomplishment in that space. And I love what that tells to people listening in, which is, you know, you can use what you have where you are to actually do really good things. If if you want to come into this space, there are ways in. Um, and so that's amazing. And what you're saying about museums in Rome, my partner is obsessed with Rome, um, not in terms of wanting to be Roman, but he loves listening to the history and the culture of it because he's in architecture. And he's always saying, this is very, th- like the theme here is very linked to colonization, you know, and he's always going on about that. So I, I can't wait to say to him, well, I can now point you towards the academic work. You are right. Because <laughs> I was like, okay, all right, you know, cool. Um, I haven't listened to all these podcasts that he listens to. But the way that history impacts us today, even when it's on the other side of the world, um, that's so interesting. Um. So there are things that I'm saying I love about you and your role as a black academic, but I would love to know what is your favourite part of being a black academic? I think it's, I, I think it's, you know, just to revisit a little bit of what you said, I think it is those connections. Mm. You know, I think it's um, being able to be around people who are thinking about solutions to stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, the academy's not always about that. And no. it's not always about, like, I know how to challenge stuff in ways that I think the academy still is tentative with. Um, and, you know, I think there it's an imperative and it's kind of a colonial imperative as well as a, you know, as absolutely cultural imperative as well. Um, but, you know, one example actually is in that whole Roman thing. And so, you know, one of the things that I got challenged on when I was um, talking about, First Nations people in England because people were going, no, there's no First Nations people here. No, we can't tell you about it. No, we can't, blah, blah, blah. I'm going, well, people didn't just, like, magically turn up here. Like, some somebody was here. So what does that mean for you? I'm not trying to turn – I'm not trying to turn it into they're the same people now. I'm just trying to turn into what. how do you represent that? Um, and it was interesting because what a lot of people would say is, but – you know, we might, you might as well be talking about the Vikings who were here, you know, 11 centuries ago. Like, 11 centuries ago is a really long time. Like, it's mm. really long. Mm. Um, so let's say we are, and I'd say, well, you know, what, I mean, then what do, you, what do you think about Maori people? Like, you know, you know, do, are they Indigenous? Oh, yeah, that's different. What, because they're brown? <laughs> um, you know, and that's, the, that's part of it. But also they'd say things like, oh, we probably look like Romans. And it's kind of like Rome was a colonising space that had 
I mean, none of the Ro- the Romans did not look Italian. No. <laughs> no, the, no. the Romans in England looked like they were from North Africa because they're from North Africa. They're mm. black. So, yeah. do you mean that you might look black? <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> but of course, they're not. They're doing some sort of a that. Why don't we look like Kirk Douglas? Moment. Yeah. You know, they're they're doing this whole idea of it, and they're not recognizing. I mean, the example obviously is that a whole lot of the kind of thought. Um, it was arguably Greek um, that was happening in Rome because they were the, they were the people who were you know um, validated as, as the kind of great thinkers. Yeah. But also it wasn't. It was other spaces too, yeah. because that's what colonizers do is gather. You know whether it's linguistically, and we know the linguistic mm. stuff of that, or whether it's um, you know actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, and make it physical. Something that becomes Roman, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except it's not. So <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think. In some ways, it's having those conversations that's mm. the thing that really is bold. You know, I've just been at, um, at Charles Sturt Uni, on, uh, you know, in my country. And, I mean, one of the interesting things about being in own country is I, I actually thought I was going to turn up there and go, it's not a country. And then I thought, well, I'm, am. I'm not going to do a welcome <laughs> so because actually this still feels like a distance but it also reminds me of how big the Rajri is yeah Dubbo isn't particularly you know my country yeah. anyway but also I love that I love that there's the, these connections and there's a complexity to it yeah and that's like you know that not to turn it into like because I actually think it's the same thing and the same people but it's the same with um with black academia I think yeah. it's this notion of um concentrations being built up about really interesting thought uh you know that um indigenous futurisms conference that we had i mean that couldn't have existed 10 years ago yeah i couldn't i was teaching that day um so uh, i had major mofo um especially because so many people i knew were there Um, well and i i think i was just happy it was taking place you know and and with social media we can i think it opens up Sometimes it helps us imagine what's possible because you see That's someone right. else doing it and then you go, okay, you know, what, what might this look like elsewhere? So I was, I was so glad that that was happening down in that space that I work in. Um, I was disappointed that I couldn't come, but I watched along hungrily online. <laughs> well, I think, the, um, I, mean, I think that's actually also how speculative fiction became, you know, so what Indigenous Futurisms is really, um, became... So, no, Indigenous Futurisms is more than speculative fiction, but it encompasses the best of it, yeah. you know? Like, what's, what a lot of spec fiction misses is actually what Indigenous Futurism can deliver. And having Grace Dillon there is amazing. Having the connection internationally mm. is incredibly important mm. for me as well. You know, particularly with all of the work that I've done in the US and Canada on, on the Thinking mm. Through the Museum, project with um, Museum Queries uh, with the University of Winnipeg, that is amazing. You know, it's amazing to spend time with them, but also to be thinking about what's happened in that space because it gives us messages. It gives us stuff that we can think about um, that I think we wouldn't have without, without... making those connections i don't think they have to be i think they can be virtual these days you know i think that it really can be and i think that's a a good cheaper way to do it but also a way to maintain connection um and but i also love doing the face-to-face and i love doing the face-to-face once and then connecting up in social media is another good way to do it but you know i've learned so much and and shortcutted processes without question and, you know, and, and realise that certain things have worked in those other spaces. And it's not about, it's like looking at what works in museums. It's not going, and we'll duplicate that here. Mm. It's kind of going, okay, why did that happen? And why yeah. did it work? And what was not working about it? And what was, you know, and being able to talk to people about that um, and hear what they have to say, obviously, is um, an incredible gift. And, yeah. and people are really kind about it. Yeah. Um, and we'll give you time. So, yeah. Yeah, I so agree I wholeheartedly with that. I think there's a um, because because the pool of of black academics, 
particularly when we focus on, say, published black academics. It's such a small pool on this continent that I have drawn a lot on. Like there's a Cree scholar whose work I love, Tracy Lindbergh, and one of their papers is on Indigenous academia. Like that's what it's called, where she wrote it, you know, like her first year as an academic and then she wrote back to herself five years later. And it really, in these spaces, um, I find that there are there are tools and there are hints and there's encouragement written in these spaces because there is commonality in pain and in beauty across the continent for people who are living in extractive settler colonial states as First Nations people. And then, so um, I don't, I've never told you this story before, but I thought I would tell you while we're podcasting. Um, so we just had our two-year friend anniversary on Facebook. And um, two years ago, we had never connected and you added me on Facebook and I don't really accept people on Facebook, but I could see we had a lot of mutual friends. And so I was like, okay, I'll just accept this person um, because your name looked familiar because I'd seen some of your work. And I was on the brink of quitting academia. I'd had a not good first year and um, I had been trying to blog uh, because everyone was like, you have to control your first two pages of Google. And I was like, I don't know how to do that. Um, they were like, you have to do a blog. Even if you just post pictures, you've got a blog. And so I oh put up... Oh, my God. Nobody ever told me that. It was very oh, yeah. stressful and I was already very stressed. So I was trying to run this blog and I would just put things up and I was really counting on no one reading it. And I didn't actually know how to check the stats. Uh, so I accepted your friendship and you did a post Um and it, the, the timing here is what I wanted to tell you. So that day I was feeling, uh, have you ever heard the term vulnerability hangover? Mm. Right. So this, this feeling of vulnerability and it hits you like a hangover. And I thought, oh, I feel too exposed having a blog, which is kind of funny now because I'm way more public and everything. Mm. I'm going to deactivate it because people are going to read it and think that I'm a dickhead. Right? <laughs> and so I actually deactivated it, but I must have deactivated it right after you'd shared it on your Facebook. Yeah, Yeah, and so I accepted your friendship and I saw you were tagging me in this post to say, oh, there's this great blog and this person's taking the academy to task, which I wasn't trying to do, (laughs) just was what I was doing. Um, And people had commented like, oh, it's coming up system error. And I was sitting there and I don't think I, I don't think I told you at the time. I was like, oh, it's probably a glitch. And I went and reactivated it. (laughs) But I was like, I was, I was done. I was so done. And I was like, I don't want to ever be public with the work. Like, I don't like feeling exposed. It felt so uncomfortable. And, and then to have this powerful black academic, this person whose work, like I knew your name from your work. So I had read your work, some of your work. Um, and then I just felt like, oh, okay, well, this person says that this is something that's of use. And if I'm making anything of use, I do want people to be able to have access to it. So I reactivated and and I share on some of the other episodes about how black academics on Twitter, just being nice, like, you know, mm. just following me when I first joined and, um, you know, I'd, I'd make silly little um, little jokes or whatever about academia and and uh, just those little engagements and you just you start feeling less isolated because it's so isolating it. yeah. but also I you know I remember all of that happening and of course oh, I just um, but I I can tell you how I felt I was really glad I mean I can't kind of come up this is uh, buying into my Pollyanna-esque stuff that I've been doing um, but I was I was really glad about um, you having that uh, and also there's a it goes beyond glad it's about being a bit relieved um, that these spaces exist and that people are putting energy into them mm. and that you know there are great younger um, minds or even not even younger but also emerging yeah um, thought around some of these ways that things are connecting because it is about renewing that if Mm. i think back to 20 um years 20 years ago maybe it's a bit less than that uh maybe 18 years ago i remember going to the to the first indigenous researchers forum that i went to um i mean i've been to other indigenous forums before but this was literally called indigenous researchers forum kind of died off at a particular point and it died off for a really important reason. There suddenly ended up being these concentrations around discipline. Before that, you would have a scientist there and a historian, and a, it was really random. Yeah. And actually, I suspect that might be one of the issues for the IATSIS conference sometimes, okay. depending on what their focus is. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little bit too broad. Um, and when 
places do that and make it too broad, it doesn't work quite as well. Mm. I, mean, I think randomly some of the, there have been some fantastic stuff at the AATSIS conference, but I think it's actually a hard brief now to mm. kind of manage, let's just think about Indigenous stuff. Yeah. Um, and But at the time there were so few of us, yeah. and now there's just, I know it doesn't feel like it because there's still so few, but there's so many more. Um, yeah. And that, that absolutely... Um, changes every year you know, i'm doing this project at the moment on challenging symbolic annihilation and it's a major project that's looking at you know it's a big project in the sense that it'll outlive me because it's a database and it's a database that's not about managing categories but it's about hopefully breaking down some of these categories but also populating ideas around this and it's starting with a really narrowed kind of category base which is looking at queer diverse representation on network TV um, from any time up to the 90s, as well as then beyond. So sort of having that as a, as a pivot point, just so that I can say it. In fact, I found 200 representations of queer diverse characters um, before 1990, if you can imagine that. But it's populating this for a reason. Um, it's not just the challenging symbolic annihilation. Of course, we must challenge not being pre present or represented. You know, it's crucial that we do that. And I, I, I write about that a fair bit of my work, but, and I, I be believe it and live it all the time. But it's also, you know, when you get to now, and it's like the black academic stuff, you know, there are now, I could go to the IATSIS conference and not know everyone. Yeah, <laughs> that feels like a, a win for me. You know, yeah. all these people and thinking, I don't know who you are. <laughs> That's great, though. That's yeah. so good. It's, it's terrific, and and also it's terrific to see that other people have stayed in the academy. So there's that. But it's like that when I'm looking at these these TV representations. You know, I can look to 1973 and see 12, and yeah. um, then I can look to. Um, last uh, year before last is sort of as late as I've got into it so far is and see um, nearly a thousand wow. and that is it's powerful in ways that are hard to describe and hard for younger people kids I mean to know and to understand I mean I think I've said to a few people that I've got 200 um, iterations of pre-1990 um, network TV, um, queer representation, not all diverse, though a lot of diversity in there. And and I think I mean ethnic diversity because it's sort of the thing that's left up to grabs. Um, um, but it's been interesting to see that there was more than I imagined. Yeah. I, mean, I, li I lived a lot of that or saw it in repeat. Um, and I was surprised to see that um, Mary Tyler Moore Show had three Queer wow. characters, like as an example, as a random example, yeah. um, and I could pick a whole lot more. And also, you know, part of what this does is it spikes into. I mean, I need this data, and thousands of people need this data. We've got to work together as researchers sometimes to find um, and and make meaning of the data that we have. And so, I, you know, and sometimes we have to do it in funny ways, um, and that's you know, finding out that somebody's interested in the fandom and me going, okay, find out all the queer characters in there and run them down his the form. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> which I do all the time. I'm still trying to find a Game of Thrones person. <laughs> so, so it's, you know, these are, this is, it's crucial for us to see concentrations of stuff. Um, but it's also, you know, it reminds me again of the, of the Blackademia stuff that we connect up in that international space and connected up because we needed to, but we have to maintain that at yeah. a time where we might build up concentration locally. I yeah. think the strategies for expanding it is just, it's crucial. I mean, I keep thinking of, you know, the work I did in the museums was great, but I tell you one major message that came out of the work I did in the museums um, that I frequently share has nothing to do with museums and it's about, with, with Australian audiences, I mean, and I mostly care about what Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people think in that space, um, but it's the one around um, around how the tax system works in the US. And so it's about um, federally recognised tribes and access to, um, to tax. And so I'll frequently put up a, a piece that um, shows 
uh, it's like a you know stay at a hotel and you have like a breakfast menu mm -hmm. and at the bottom of the one in Lansing Michigan um staying at Soaring Eagle Casino that I could have been staying at any motel or hotel there and it would have had the same thing there's something that says um seven percent SCIT which is Saginaw Chippewa Indian tax um and that seven percent tax if I go through McDonald's drive-through I'm going to get a receipt that says seven percent you know, if I buy a TV, it's going to have 7% Saginaw Chippewa Indian tax. Because instead of a Michigan um, state tax, it's that tax. That tax covers whatever the state tax covers. But the decisions about how that's covered are made by the community. Wow. And that's incredibly powerful. So, you know, I also often flash up a photo of Mashantaka uh, Pequot. Um, I'm there having a, a fueling up my car um, in the Pequot community, so an hour, hour out of New York City. Um, and I'm fueling up the car and suddenly this cop car that goes past with this, you know, um, First Nations design on the side. And of course, all of the people who work in the police force, the police force is run by, uh, you know, National um, Tech Pequot people, Pequot people. I can't know, even imagine that. Like, I can't, can't even, even imagine it. No. That's right. And, and so we do, you know, to go to somewhere like a NIDA community that has, I can't quite remember, it's like three to 5,000, I can't remember what figure, enrolled members, and they have hundreds of businesses, including ones offshore. They're making heaps of money. You know, part of the problem, when, tri when a tribe is making a lot of money and doing really well, nobody's writing about them. Like, yeah. actually, you know, it's really funny, but um, success and success in business, it gets written about when it's a point of difference. Yeah. But not when it's like a standard thing. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's, so we don't so hear it, about it because it's a success yeah. rather than an example of deficit. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> or, or rather than that operating is a kind of point of difference as well. And we're effectively running really effective businesses and they've got a really great tax break. I, I think we're starting to see it with supply nation. Yeah. You know, I think there's thing there's moments where, where we're starting to see it. But I mean again you know, having somewhere like the National Congress of American Indians, which has been a remarkable space. And unfortunately, when our Congress happened, um, we followed their model a little bit, except we had no money. You yeah. know, like their model is about having, not having billions of dollars, but directing billions of dollars. And I don't mean millions, I mean billions and billions of dollars. So you look at, there's this wonderful budget report that they brought out in 2013, uh, 11, um, in 2011, guess it must have been it, you know they do budget reports for um the national budget stuff which is every five years so um so i'm not sure um what the uh, what year it was but it must have been 2010 or 2011 anyway it was this remarkable budget i mean budget reports should just be this boring um need to fund this here's why uh, this is what it costs but it had these gorgeous narratives in there you know this is asking for, you know, $10 billion for education. Um, and there's this amazing narrative um, on, you know, what the benefits are, what the outcomes are, and it was beautifully done. Yeah. Um, and they're the kinds of things that, you know, I wished that we could have done, but you can't do it without um, also having the money follow. Yeah. You know? And um, it's, yeah, that whole, and of course there's, you know, there's a great big caveat in here that says I'm talking about federally recognised tribes, yeah. not state recognised and not unrecognised. Yeah. And that still makes up a, a lot of people in the US. So it's not perfect system. No. It's just that it is a system that we can look to, understand that it's not perfect and look to it and go, why can't we do what a NIDA community is doing? Mm. And, and we don't have to do necessarily what some of those communities are doing too around blood quantum. You know, that restricts members you know there are so there are things that we can borrow the idea of not appropriate it but just go what would happen if we did that here yeah what would it mean if we did that here and what it would mean for a lot of communities would be um a, it costing a lot less money and it being more successful yeah you know, community policing. controlled yeah you know, yeah. Every school, every school, whether there's Indigenous or non-Indigenous people there is run by, you know, in those identified communities, identified communities, I mean, they're identified communities, but they just look like every other town. Yeah. You know, I mean, I remember going up to, in Wisconsin, to um, Mount Pleasant, um, which is Potawatomi uh, community. And so, again, you know, obviously I was driving through Illinois and went um, up to 
um, Wisconsin and, you know, went through a lot of communities that were trying, kind of doing it pretty tough. That must have been two times, 2009 and 2010. Um, and really, you know, it wasn't, there, there were, it was clearly, um, the shift towards some stuff happening financially and then the moment you get into a first nations community it actually looks pretty affluent yeah and it's not only um first nations people living there you know because they've got a responsibility to the whole of community if there are yeah. police force there for whoever lives there yeah you know it's not tribal land it's it is and it isn't it's tribal land but they have control over a broader space so um which is, yeah, again, it's really interesting. And, of course, when you've got, I mean, I, I, you know, I mentioned Pequot people before. They're an hour out of New York City. They've got a massive hotel. I mean, people will say, oh, casino Indians. Um, yeah, I mean, they make money off the casino, but they've got a couple of thousand hotel rooms that they actually make money off. They're on a really in a really nice place an hour out of New York. Yeah. So, you know, so there's a complexity to it and there's a reductive kind of narrative that sits alongside that that people want to pitch. And, yeah, and I, I love the stuff that happens in First Nations communities in the US in terms of representation in museums as well, where there's a very unapologetic, don't know why anyone would be apologising, but there's a very unapologetic kind of position on um, on representation. A lot of, you know, like you go into the Mashantucket Pequot um, museum and it's like one of those chronological museums so you see from deep time through to uh, current era I mean halfway through there's this movie um, that they put 27 million into um, so it's an expensive movie yeah um, with very high production values um, that's about the mystic massacre um, that happened at mystic which is on country um, where you know you see dead kids with blood on them oh. of course you do and you know, like, and so you just see the people looking traumatized as they're leaving. Because the... <laughs> it's realistic. Well, it's a far, far cry from the Thanksgiving images that they're used to seeing. You Precisely. Know. Yeah. yeah. It's a challenge to that. And uh, the thing I love about that the Pequot Museum is that it costs about twenty five bucks to get into. So I think they've just paid to be traumatized by their own. You know, and and they're unapologetic about it because they don't care. You know, it's for them. It's for their. Um, for them to tell their story and it is the power of it's the power of museums that work you know mm. and a lot of people who go there do want to see that too um yeah. but i actually noticed one thing uh, some americans can um turn that into the english about Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. never terrible. Oh, we yes. We're, we're, not, much yes. We're, not, we're not currently colonising. It's something <laughs> that happened right. and it's happened past early. now. Yeah, and they were bad. Remember oh. when they killed all those children? It's a very so, good thing we're not part of that anymore. Yeah, exactly. Go July 4th. So, <laughs> there was a very interesting distancing that occurred. Um, mm. Yeah, it's, but it's always amazing to see how people distance themselves anyway. So, yeah, yeah. I love but, the storytelling nature of that, like the... I love that you know this stuff because I don't know this stuff. And I think, you know, having gone from being an academic because, well, I mean, I was, I was going to go work for the Attorney General, actually. Everything was signed. Uh, and then I was asked to do a, a brief RA thing, research system. And I was like, oh, what does this mean? And, and then loved it. And then they said, well, if you do a PhD, you can be an early career academic and we can get you started. And so I enrolled in all of that. And and really had a hard time of it. And But when I was at that point where I wanted to quit and I started thinking about, well, these are the people who I feel very supported by, I started to think, well, why do they stay? And then I started yeah. thinking about the fact that that's something that people kept asking me. University people, if I was, you know, out at, at events, they would say, how can we hire more Aboriginals? And I'd be like, I have no effing clue because I'm not a business person. What are you talking about? And then I thought, you know, why are they asking me? And 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 then I thought, well, actually, maybe maybe that's something that I need to question. Maybe I need to ask First Nations academics what, who are academics why do you choose this role? Why do you keep choosing this role? And then I had to limit my scope to people who identify as women to just limit that scope for a PhD. But I think um, 
being able to explore the stories of individuals and then see the way each of them now carry so many beautiful word gifts and stories as academics and information that boggles my mind but sounds amazing if I had more lifetimes I would you know happily go into many of these these spaces and I just think the opportunity and the purpose and the why that presents to us as black academics and it does seem to be shared across the globe in terms of you know the black academia black academic community which has inspired the naming of this podcast um I just find it so delicious I just love the stories and all of the different whys and it, it, it has absolutely changed my perspective and my experience and it's um you know it's been two years since I was like this is the worst why am I here to going this is literally the best and I feel so privileged to even get to do this um so a, a big part of that obviously was social media and online engagement because of that connected nature of the black academia black academic community online and uh when I kind of floated the idea on Twitter that I would start a podcast um, I decided to ask Twitter what they would like to hear. Uh, and I, I sent you some questions and I was wondering if you'd like to pick two of them to respond. Basically, I'll answer anything. <laughs> <laughs> so Alice underscore TPS asks, who has championed slash supported slash mentored you? I think um, one of the people who did really early on was um, Bronwyn Fredericks. I love her. Um, yeah. And... Um, also, Bronwyn Carlson, even though, you know, she came to the Academy later than me, um, I think, see, I don't, I don't think there's a sequence with it. I think it yeah. is just about that idea of um, finding people who make you think about something a bit differently. Um, for yeah. me, that was more important than the confidence of doing it. I got to a stage in my career where I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. And I've been an academic for 27 years, so it's a long time to have – and I suppose by that I mean that was when I started tutoring, but, you know, I've kind of been doing it full-time for 25 years, and so it's a long time. The academy changed over that time. Mm. It was a lot of different people having confidence in me yeah. and then eventually me having enough confidence in myself to know that I didn't have to feel confident. <laughs> so yeah. that is kind of how it works though. You know, I now I don't care if I don't know stuff. I just ask and work it out and work it through and find out. I don't blunder through, I don't think. Um, I think there was a time where I felt like I was always blundering through and I don't mean I didn't know what I was teaching or researching or whatever I just mean that everything felt like it could have gone quite a few ways and I was worried about that instead of excited by it and I think people like um, both the Bronwyns <laughs> um, <laughs> there's a lot also, of good Aboriginal Bronwyns in the world isn't there <laughs> there's, 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 yeah. um, so, um, I, so I think I think them, but also in very different ways. Mm. But I think also um, seeing the work of people like Aileen Morton Robinson, mm. um, you know, being able to know that there was a shape to some of the discussions. Sandra Phillips has been yeah. a really um, important colleague of mine. And then I think there have been people who have shaped what I do because... They might be doing something quite different, um, but they've made me think, and, and they may even have very different perspectives. So yeah. an e example would be, you know, Marcia Langton. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we I don't always love everything that um, she's done, but I love so much that she's done. Yeah. You know? and, I, and I really respect the work that she's interested in. I think people like Michelle Evans, I love that, yeah. um, that her work with Mara, um, I think as an academic um, who works beyond academia, Lisa Wadigo, I think, yes. um, you know, that, you know, somebody who bridges the gap between academia and business in the way that actually both of them do mm. um, is incredibly powerful. And I also think that, um, that for me, that is you know, key to this. And mm. I think there's also a lot of non-Indigenous academics who have shaped the work that I do mm. and sometimes not when I wanted it either. When mm. I wanted that shape, it was, I know that there's areas that I didn't go into at all because I didn't want to work with certain people. Yeah. And, um, and I think that's, you know, especially as a younger academic, that was okay. Mm. Um, I think now I push people out. 
in that space. And I mean, I'd call them out, yeah. you know, um, and get them to account for themselves. And I know how to do that a lot better than I used to. Um, but yeah, it's no, it's no mean feat to do that, um, mm. that stuff and no mean feat to kind of feel it. Um, but you know, at this stage of my career, um, it's, you know, I don't want to be the person who's necessarily running particular things. I want to yeah. be a participant. Yeah. Um, I still feel the need to see myself in that way. And that's kind of part of the music stuff too, is, you know, it's about collaboration and participation mm. and engagement. And it's absolutely part of being an Aboriginal person. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to romanticise Aboriginality. You know, for a lot of people, that's not their experience. For me, it's been part of my cultural experience. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to wrap up our incredible yes. conversation, but I could <laughs> just, you. I could just yarn with you all day. Um, so thank you so much. Incredible associate professor, Sandy O'Sullivan, S-O-S. Um, thank That's you so it. much for sharing your time and your wisdom and your stories with us here on Black Academia. You're very welcome. Thank you for sharing yours as well. It was really interesting to hear that and lovely to catch up. Thank you. Brand. See ya. That's all we have time for on this week's episode of Black Academia. But if you'd like to learn more about Associate Professor Sandy O'Sullivan and their work, head to our website, www.blackademia.com. Be sure to stream in next week as I yarn with author, marathoner and all-around brilliant woman, Professor Anita Heiss. Yalu!